You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. The text that we're going to read this morning is a very familiar one, and I would invite us as a reflection of our honoring of what it is that Jesus gives us here as good news and as a readiness to respond with action to please stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The floods, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, in terrible distress. And Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard him, he was amazed And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed. In that hour. Oh God, we turn to you as the one who has spoken and still speaks. May we have ears to hear and hearing, may we have lives willing to trust and to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of Matthew is a book that I've often thought of as something like the smelling salts gospel. It feels like it's the gospel up your nose. It feels as though Matthew is saying, now here, take a breath of this, breathe deeply, and I dare you to stay asleep or to become dulled to the reality of a gospel that is meant to wake us up in every possible dimension. The kingdom of God is the thing that is meant to wake us from our sleepy lives, our sleepy, self-interested lives, our lives that are bent in so often on ourselves and awaken us to the God of all creation, 
The God who made these extraordinary flowers, who does amazing acts of creativity and imagination and purpose, redemption and salvation and healing all around the world, and that has come to us now in Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus is saying, I want all this to matter. I want you to hear this sermon, and then I want you to be people who build your houses on rock and not on sand. And the difference is not what you're going to experience. You will experience wind and rain and storms. That's going to be the same. It's all about whether or not you respond as though you have built your house on rock and not on sand. And that difference will not be your strategy about the study of soils. It will actually be based on whether you actually live what I've just taught. There is this assumption on Jesus' part that to hear and understand is to do. Biblical vision of wisdom, Old and New Testament alike, is really a picture of wisdom that is about the truth and character of God being lived. It's never just an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a perspective. It's not a worldview. It's actually meant to be a way that we live in the world by enacting the truth and character of God. And here Jesus says that will be all the difference between whether you stand on rock or whether you fall on sand. This is the great challenge. And isn't it not true that one of the greatest indictments, perhaps historically and certainly in our own day, is that the church is indicted by a surrounding culture that says, why do you never actually live what you say you believe? Or why is it so hard to see, in any case, that you live what you claim to believe? Or why does your enactment smell so badly? Why does it create a culture, often, of such judgment, such a sense of harshness, an absence of love, an an absence of compassion, an absence of a commitment to justice, to the right ordering of power? Instead, we are so often a church that's just framed by a culture in which really we are turned largely in on ourselves, largely seeking to be our own community for our own sake. Here Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to reorder everything. These five, three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew 5 through 7 are like three chapters that reorder reality. Do you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? Jesus says, well, this is what it's like. It reorders power. It reorders your power. It reorders the power of your neighbor. It reorders the power of those who like you and that don't like you. And it reorders the power of those who may even be your enemies. It calls you to an entirely different way of living. It will not be the same sociology. You will live a new social reality if you live in the kingdom of God. And if you look at your life and it looks the same as it would have looked had Jesus never been a part of it, it's more likely sand than it is rock that we're building on. The challenge is, are we prepared to let the kingdom of God reorder us? Not just reorder perhaps our mind, as important as that is, but to reorder our mind in action, to become embodied demonstrations of the goodness, the justice, the mercy of God, as so evidenced in Jesus' life and here in the Sermon on the Mount. So at the end, he says, don't stand at the door and say, good sermon, pastor. Jesus says, I didn't come to the mountain to have you come down in the valley and say, thanks for the good word. No, I want you to actually live what I've just said. Embody the reality, build on rock and not on sand, and the difference will be what you do. Now, Matthew pauses there and makes a note. It's a very interesting note. He says simply, and and all those who heard Jesus' teaching were astounded, astonished, overwhelmed, stunned, 
Why were they so stunned? Because the word that's authority, that is given there of Jesus' authority, he taught them as one who had authority, is really this connection between what Jesus said and what Jesus did. That was what distinguished him. And it stood out with an extraordinary sense of boldness. This is authority that's not just about power, raw power, or charisma. It's about demonstrated reality. For those who heard him were astounded at his authority. For he taught them not like the scribes and Pharisees. Then, in a very seamless way, Matthew just goes on to say they came down from the mountain. And the very first encounter that happens with Jesus and his disciples as they come down from the mountain, from the place where he said, those who follow me need to be more righteous than, than even the scribes and Pharisees. I call you to be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That teaching, they come down the mountain, and the very first person that they encounter is a lover. Now, for anyone who understood the first century and for anyone who today is familiar with this theme around lepers, it's really iconic. It's hard to think of any other single image that would more vividly demonstrate just exactly how shocking Jesus' teaching on the mountain really had been. Because it was clear that if you were a leper, you were meant to walk through the world saying to anyone around you, unclean, 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 as a way of saying, don't come anywhere near me. And now, now in this amazing encounter, Jesus comes down from the mountain and the very first person does not cry out unclean. Instead, the leper cries out, if you choose you could make me clean. Jesus had the ability and readiness to hear that, and having heard it, he stops. Now this is the moment where we all find the rub of whether we're willing to build on rock or sand. The cry has gone up, the evidence of need is there, the opportunity is at hand. We may or may not be physical healers, but we are certainly meant to be people of exceptional and unexplained compassion. And in that moment, we will either choose to engage or we will choose to be deaf. We will choose to just not quite hear that time. Or in a social pattern that we're all familiar with, we simply deflect it as a word that must belong to someone else. Jesus received it as a word specifically to him. He stops. And he greets the man and dignifies him by actually hearing and honoring and reflecting back what he's just said. I do choose. I, Jesus, Choose you. Be made clean. It is an amazing moment. It's Matthew's way of saying, are you paying attention? Do you get that what I've just said on the mountain is not just about a theory of the kingdom of God. It's actually a way of living in the kingdom of God. And at that awkward moment, when you may be tired having come down from the mountain, you may be distracted, you may have stuff you gotta do, you have to check your email, you need to get on with the next day's work, you need to do all the things that are part of the weight of ordinary life, and right there suddenly arises the opportunity to actually engage and to serve. Jesus stops touches, speaks, and heals the man. Anyone in the first century would have understood this was an encounter with a person who stains. That's the problem with lepers. They, they might stain you. And in that way that was part of the ritual purity, the feeling was you just don't want to get near a leper because they might make you dirty. And I want to suggest this morning that we live in a world where there are lots of people that we each think stain us or might. Might. 
Is not this the character of so much racial tension, so much hostility, the feeling that proximity might somehow leave a residue that we just are not quite sure we want? We don't want to be around those people. Or religious differences where there's hostilities and clothing that's strange. Just even yesterday here in New Village, I was standing behind a woman with a hijab and she was waiting in line at that amazing ice cream store that's now in University Village. And as all this was happening, it was clear that, frankly, that there were a lot of people checking her out. It was just a catch, a catch of awareness, like, who are you and what are you doing and how might this go? It was a moment of realizing, again, the prominence in our lives of people that might stain us. They don't share our voting record. They don't share our sociology. They don't wear the same clothes. They don't smell the same way. They don't look the same way. They don't act the same way. They don't speak in our language. And as a result, we simply become people who decide we just don't want to be stained, really. It just gets a little more complicated than we're interested in. And right in that moment, we decide, I guess we're just opting for sand. I'll just go for sand. Jesus says, right in that moment, I'm calling you, if you follow me, to choose to build on stone, on rock. Move toward the other, not away. Some of you are familiar, perhaps, with the study that has been done on implicit bias. You can easily type it into Google, implicit bias Harvard, and you'll find a little uh, search link that will connect you to a test that you can take that is just a test that gives you a sense of opportunity to think about how you see the people that are around you. You might agree with its findings, you might not agree with its findings. It was developed partly here at the University of Washington, partly at at Wisconsin, also at Harvard. Very, very interesting tool. Just a little moment of realizing where might I get caught? It might be worth your time. Just thinking again about where am I caught? Who are the people that that might scare me, that might stain me? that might differentiate me, that might make too much demand on me. And in that moment, we have to ask ourselves, so what are we going to choose? Here, Jesus chooses to build on rock, to actually step toward the other rather than actually away from the other. This is a remarkable moment, and it is a moment when we see clearly again how important it is to be people who seek to be followers of Jesus, this unexpected instinct. A few years ago, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the growing popularity of private jet travel. And the article focused on the fact that, you know, in a post-9-11 world, there was this incredible sense of the hassle of commercial air travel. The article, like so many of these do, zeroed in on a widget maker who'd become a gazillionaire, and therefore he decided that he was going to only fly privately, and he explained why this happened. He said, because one day I was flying from one coast to the other, and I, of course, was in first class, and there was a woman with a baby in business, and the baby cried the whole way across the country, and he said, and that settled it. I knew right then I'm never flying commercial again. And then he gave us his mission statement, and it was this. He said, because, quote, I've realized that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Okay, let's just meditate on that for just a minute. Okay, let's just sort of let this wash over us, because I've decided that the really important thing to me is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Now, when I first read this, I thought, oh, that just is disgusting. Until I paused just a little bit longer and thought, oh, that's familiar. (laughs) Isn't that partly why I love having caller ID? 
isn't that partly what Mark Zuckerberg understood about so seamlessly friending and even better unfriending people? Is that not what explains where I drive and where I live and who I see and who I don't see and who I actually hear and who I really don't hear? Doesn't it explain the world, the sociology that I live in, which is an elaborate, seamless expression of exclusion? unless I decide to live otherwise. And if we're followers of Jesus, our life is meant to be a life of inclusion. Not in a PC way, but in a God-centered, Jesus-focused, liberating act of unexpected kindness and compassion and mercy. Because that's what it means to build our houses on rock and not on sand. And if all this wasn't enough, then the next section of this very text is this amazing section where Jesus then moves on from the persons who might stain us to the enemy. Here it's a Roman centurion, a person that is a representative of Roman authority. There was nothing more crushing and brutal in the first century for the people of Israel than Rome itself. A centurion comes to Jesus, the person who was surely Jesus' enemy and the enemy of everyone else. It was clear what he should have done, but it's not at all how it all unfolded. The man simply makes a simple protest of, of a cry for help. Jesus immediately, the text says, is responsive and says, I'll come and help. No, 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 no. The man says, no, you, you don't need to come. No, I see, I understand how authority and power works. What happens is that you just need to say the word. It's just like me. I'm a person in the military. I say the word and things get done. You just need to say the word. Jesus, hearing this from the enemy, says, are we all hearing what's actually being said here? Here's the enemy expressing faith that he says, I've not heard in all of Israel. There are people in Israel who will be found in the outer darkness, and there are people in the outer darkness from the north, south, east, and west who will be found in the household of faith because they live this kind of trust. And then the servant is healed. We live in a world of people who stain, we think, but we even more vividly live in a world of people that we consider enemies. Enemies because they don't see the world that we do. They don't hold the same vision that we might hold. They don't protest or believe the same faith. They don't practice the same lifestyle. They don't operate in the same world. They feel to us people that are threatening. And there is a kind of global blanket of fear, it seems to me, that is just sort of encompassing and engulfing the world, all for different reasons, each from their own local setting and many of them that we hold in common around the globe. And in that context, the question is, what are the people of God that follow Jesus supposed to do? Are they supposed to actually just treat the enemies as those that should be rebuffed and violently fought? Or are we meant to be peculiar people who live in an unexpected way? I actually admit very clearly that there are lots of involved, complicated international issues around military and the use of military violence, the protection of national interests. All that debate can happen. But the question for the people of God is, we follow an enemy-loving God. What are we going to do about loving enemies? How do we know that Jesus is an, serves and reveals an enemy-loving God? Because we're here. The Bible says it was we who were once enemies who have been invited into the household of God. It was while we were yet sinners, it was while we were yet enemies, that Christ died for us. So we know about enemies. 
And we know about the need to actually love enemies. And you and I are called to love enemies because we follow an enemy-loving God. So in a moment where it feels that, again, like the church is exposed over and over again as a culture that has too often simply been about its own security, its own safety, its own sense of eternal blessing that privately and personally and individually protects us, but in a world that is starving for courageous people who demonstrate a capacity to love and engage and serve against the currents of fear, against the currents of difference, against the currents of differentiation and hostility that easily draws lines rather than actually demonstrates and enacts the compassion and love and justice of God, Jesus says, wow, here's this enemy who makes a protest of faith more vivid and tangible and impressive than I've heard in all the house of Israel. I wonder what he would say today. Are we people who know and follow Jesus when it engages us with people who might stain us? I hope so. UPC isn't a church that's meant to be a church that hangs out in its own crowd. The whole point is to hang out in a greater crowd. And likewise, UPC is called to be a community of people that learn together to love enemies. So, how's that going? When I was writing a book called The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of Jesus, I found it a very, very challenging book, but it was finally nearly done. I had the manuscript in my hand. I was getting on an airplane very, very early one morning to fly somewhere, and I put the manuscript on the seat, case overhead, sliding in across a person that I wasn't expecting to see at 6 a.m., a woman probably in her middle, late 80s, not the usual sign on a 6 a.m. flight. I could tell as I sort of settled into my seat that she was, well, she was a talker, really. That was, that I could just feel that was what was about to happen. And so after I'd gotten my seatbelt on, she said, so, um, so can I just ask you about those papers? I said, you mean these papers? Yeah, yeah, those papers, she said. Are those your papers? As though I'm thinking, whose else's were they? (laughs) Yes, yes, they are my papers. Does that mean that you wrote those papers, she said. "Um, Yes, not quite sure where this was leading. She said, well, what are those papers about? Thinking, well, what to do when a person at 6 a.m. offends you too much in an early morning flight? Like, you know... That was what I first thought. Then I said, well, you know, I mean, it's a set of reflections I've been doing on how we should respond to each other and care for our neighbor. She paused. I could just tell that we weren't done. And she said, "Um, can I just ask one more question about that? Yeah, yeah. She said, is that a work of fiction? Is that a work of fiction? See, that's really the question. The church, to many people, is a work of fiction. It's just what Christian people say. But Jesus says, if you're going to build your house on rock and not on sand, then you actually have to live what you claim to believe. Oh God, may UPC now, in this moment, in this coming week, 
May we individually and together be people who build on rock and not on sand. May we be people who see the world, the neighbor, the other, vividly, personally, compassionately, and justly. And may we be those who live no work of fiction, but who live the reality of your love and mercy and justice. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, the Word made flesh. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.